just like there's this kind of epistemic black hole of just like we don't know what we don't know and with this particular crisis i just think like there's so much information that's way beyond the frame that that we don't know and i think until we actually know what the fuck is going on like we can't even talk about calibrating uh, a, a policy response like we don't even know what's killing people anymore but i think what covid has taught us is like our country and our culture can metabolize a fuckload of deaths and just kind of like go about living right so it's kind of grim like i don't want this episode to be so depressing but we might have to go there something else is completely overlooked is that this is a polydrug crisis i mean there you know to lift fentanyl as the cause of death is 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 like almost a misnomer Maybe that gets to the core of it. It's not the drugs that are the issue. It's the mass surveillance and the police state that we live in that needs to justify its existence. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. There's a fun thing that happens when you work long enough in drug policy. You just want to start screaming. Ah! Despite harm reduction becoming a more mainstream philosophy, piecemeal reform efforts are doing little to stem the rising tide of overdose deaths in North America. I mean, it's a little like trying to stop a flooding dam by sticking your finger in the crack. With grim statistics only getting grimmer, I can only imagine how much worse the drug war would be without basic policies like naloxone distribution and syringe access evidence-based programs that are, like, almost boring to talk about because they're just so common sense. But we need to go so much further, it's just that drug policy reform activists are spending nearly all of their time fighting for just the basics. What was everybody screaming about recently? That's right, crack pipes. Thanks to a few bad faith news stories run by conservative media, everyone had to reiterate that supplying a cheap device to reduce harm is in the best interest of public health. It's an endless cycle. Next week, folks will probably have to put out fires again that no, touching fentanyl will not cause an overdose. Will it ever end? I'm Troy Farah, and you're listening to Narcotica. On this episode, it's just a simple conversation between Narcotica co-hosts Zachary Siegel, Chris Moraff, and myself. We're asking the simple question, is the drug war getting worse? Or is it getting better? Like many things, it's not black and white, but before we get into that, here's a little bit about Narcotica. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and all the rest. Go to narcocast.com to learn more about us. We'd love to hear from you. And here is our one and only advertisement. Narcotica is an independent, listener-supported program, and you can help us keep the show on the air by joining our Patreon. Just parked at patreon.com slash narcotica. And yes, we are so grateful to the people who keep this program going. We literally could not do it without you. And that's all the boring stuff. Much better than us trying to sell you a subscription to a box full of meat. That's a real thing people get. Meat boxes. And it's advertised on podcasts for some reason. Anyway, we just want to bring accurate and informed drug reporting to you, make it accessible so anybody can listen, and help bring an end to the war on people that's dressed up as a war on drugs. So with me today is Narcotica co-host Zachary Siegel, beaming from Chicago. Say hi, Zach. Good to be back on the pod. And also Narcotica co-host Chris Moraff reporting from Kensington. Hey guys, hello. 
Today we're going to do a little bit of a sit rep, you know, a situation report. Since this is a war on drugs, which is you know, really a war on people, let's take a look at what's happening right now. Is is the drug war getting better? Is it getting worse? It seems like there's improvement in some area. There's also a lot of backsliding. Uh, so we'll talk about that today. I, I've just been thinking lately that, you know, being in drug policy long enough, you eventually just like, you just start, start want to start screaming at things. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff that's happened so far this year that makes me want to scream a little bit. I am really curious, like, is the drug war getting better? Is it getting worse? It seems like you look at it from one angle, you look at it at another. Um, the main metric, I guess, is overdose deaths. And uh, we just keep breaking records on that. Um, the most recent CDC data, I think from April 2021 to April 2020, more than 100,000 people died from drug overdoses, which is just insane. The the latest is uh, estimates and provisional data from September 2020 to September 2021, just a few months past April. And yeah, in that 12-month window, it's 104,000 people, which just like trying to think back to 2017, when this whole catastrophe was officially declared a public health emergency by the government, I think we were at like 72,000 roughly total. Like that was for opioids and stimulants and benzos, like for all, for everything, excluding alcohol, of course, which, you know, we can get into that too. But uh, just like even back then, 70 something thousand was just like obscene and such a global outlier, just like totally dwarfing every other developed country and yet like it kind of got brushed under the rug you know and i and i and i always just kind of thought like okay if we hit a hundred thousand like you can't brush that under the rug like you can't ignore that but i think what covid has taught us is like our country and our culture can metabolize a fuck load of deaths and just kind of like go about living right so it's kind of grim. Like, I don't want this episode to be so depressing, but we might have to go there. I looked a little bit historically at this um, in reporting my most recent piece. And um, in in 1975, I think it was, they were calling it a heroin overdose epidemic and 175 people died in New York. Now, more than 2000 died Um in the most, according to those recent figures, and 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 it's just it's the relativity of that. It's 175 people, and across America, it was under 5,000, I think. Um, and it's just stunning to to think of how exponentially those numbers have grown. The drug war has not helped for sure, um, and it's it's hurt, in my opinion. I keep looking back to this uh, stat news piece by Max Blau from 2017, which was around the time that the three of us met. Um, and it said, you know, opioids could kill nearly 500,000 Americans in the next decade. And of course, you know, nobody could have predicted the pandemic, which created all these conditions for isolation and overdose and being alone. But like at this point, 500,000 seems quaint. Yeah, we'll eclipse that in, at this rate in just a few years. Yeah, and like we can throw statistics around all day, but like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's the thing. It's like these numbers... I was just going to say like these numbers obscure, yeah, like, like the, the human toll. And just like, I remember back when a hundred thousand people died of COVID, 
the New York Times ran like a front page spread about like the quote incalculable loss of a hundred thousand. And, you know, like I think America is we're probably coming up on a million COVID deaths at this point. I'm can't, you know, don't quote me on the exact number. But yeah, the I just get kind of tripped up on this uh kind of fact of human life that or just the nature of being human is that these numbers really just kind of numb us. Uh, what's that Stalin quote? I think it was Stalin or Lenin. It was like, you know, one, you know, a thousand Russian soldiers dead is a statistic, but one Russian soldier dead is, is a tragedy. And it gets it, it just like that. These huge numbers just kind of like dull our senses in, in some way. Like, like we can't, it's like asking how deep the ocean is. Seth Dalton, who co-produced the documentary with me that's coming out, um, is in Japan right now. It's the lar- He's in Tokyo, the largest city in the world. There's 35 million people there. And when he was heading back, they had only 60 cases of Omicron reported um, based on whatever you know policies and programs they put into place. Um, America has just done it backwards since the beginning, it seems. Um, and the Trump administration didn't help um, on either front, the drug war or, the, or, or COVID. Um, but, you know, the synthetics, like, revolution, I guess, has has just been a game changer. Um, we've, you know, we, we created the 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 um a- the avenue basically through through the 1980s and 1990s drug war for this proliferation of drugs that we you know now we're seeing nitazines like non-fentanyl opioids that are even more powerful than fentanyl um it's 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 endless yeah uh chris what do you know about nitazines because like that's something i've really been wanting to look into more but like i keep hearing about these things appearing and how do you test for them like do they even show up on fentanyl test strips i don't think they do right no, no, uh, they're not. They're non fentanyl. Um, I mean, you know, they'd be more more in the class of like the W, the W and the U drugs, the W class and U dr- class drugs that we saw in the past, um, like U four hundred or whatever that one is. So we test them in the lab. Um, and in fact, we just we just brought in uh, somebody sent me a sample from Chicago Zach, and um, there, there was um, uh, traces of metonitazine in, in one of the in one of the samples. So um, we're seeing them, I think, more in the Midwest. Um, haven't really seen many in Philly. Um, I, I don't know the history of them. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but uh, like most uh, of these drugs, they were at some point developed um, like uh, as a you know as an alternative narcotic, and then have been tweaked as as um, scheduling has has you know created barriers to getting the original drug that was needed so this actually brings me to a kind of another scary thought is like back around 2013 2014 is when like the the kind of fentanyl analog wave of the crisis really kind of started to kick off but so many of those deaths were flying under the radar because coroners and medical examiners weren't testing for fentanyl or any of the analogs during autopsy and toxicology. And so I'm wondering now, like, how many nitazine deaths are just totally going unreported and and just completely miscalculated? And, and, and I, I look at the CDC data all the time, and they have the, 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 the codes that kind of they use statistically to kind of, uh, you know, 
aggregate all these data. And I don't think there even is a code for nidazine. And they're going to, like, I, I just think, like, I wonder, it's just like there's this kind of epistemic black hole of just like, we don't know what we don't know. And with this particular crisis, I just think, like, there's so much information that's way beyond the frame that, that we don't know. And I think until we actually know what the fuck is going on, like, we can't even talk about calibrating uh, a policy response like we don't even know what's killing people anymore yeah that's such a good point this is sort of the logical result of these fentanyl analog bans like in 2018 or something like that the dea went over to china and was like stop fucking making these chemicals and they're like okay fine we will and now these like weirder things are showing up and just another example of the iron law of prohibition you know sasha shulgin the famous psychedelic chemist predicted the fentanyl uh the whole fentanyl thing he predicted in the late 70s because he just you know you look at the economic value of something that's able to be transported in small smaller and smaller amounts you know it, it the the surprising thing is that it took so long uh for fentanyl to become the dominant opioid in street drugs and now we're seeing it become completely different substances like I don't even know what nidazines feel like. Like how to like the differences between that and other opioids. No idea. And something else is completely overlooked is that this is a polydrug crisis. I mean, there you know to list fentanyl as the cause of death um, is 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 like almost a misnomer because had had that person just taken fentanyl um, and not also had benzodiazepines or methamphetamine or something else in their system, uh, they, they, may, they may be alive. Um, so um, that was really the impetus for me to start calling it the overdose crisis rather than the opioid crisis because I felt that, like that was a, a real misnomer. I mean, 80, 85 to 88%, something around there, of, of overdoses have, have more than one drug. And, and going back to the 70s in New York, the numbers I looked at, you know, that was attributed to alcohol mixed with, with heroin, really. There was, there was a rise in, and, and, you know, there's, there's a reason for everything. And people were t buying cheap bottles of Thunderbird wine to use the cap as their, as their cooker, and they would drink the wine. And, and you know, like, and that's probably the worst mix there is, is like alcohol or, you know, really any depressant. The, the uh, benzo dope we're seeing in Canada is really concerning. Um, xylazine dope here, you know, it's like they're, 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 they're really, uh, blending. It's a blend more than just fentanyl. In fact, we see bags that have less fentanyl than xylazine, you know, so it's not, but it'll be still tagged as an opioid death, you know, which, which has a backlash on pain patients, which has a backlash on, you know, creates misinformation and it's, it's just a, you know, vicious cycle. Yeah. Speaking of pain patients, have either of you seen Dope Sick? Because, like, I haven't watched it, and I feel like, oh, man, I'm like, maybe I need to get on this and see what the fuck these people are talking about. But it's just, like, it's such an oversimplified narrative. It, it feels like homework to, like, try to watch a show like that. It's, like, in my free time, the last thing I want to do is, like, that. Because, like, that would be something I would, like, pitch and get paid for to do like i've reviewed movies and books and shows like i like doing that stuff but i think there was something about dope sick or just these kind of new iteration of films and shows that just like i couldn't even look at them like so i did watch a few episodes of dope sick and you know basically 
the what I did see in the beginning was what what you what what all three of us have seen endlessly, which is that opioids are sort of uh, painted as like mosquitoes carrying malaria that like anybody who touches them comes down with addiction. And so there's just this kind of direct, very simplified one-to-one kind of relationship between doctor writes prescription, person takes Oxycontin, weeks later, months later, they're, you know, on the street, you know, totally addicted. So we all know that that's not how this stuff works, right? And that it's not like the the relationship between opioid prescribing and subsequent addiction and mortality. It's a really messy relationship. It's not like a one to one causal thing. And I I just don't think a show or a movie, you know, can can really kind of capture that. I, I just I just think it, it's it's such a messy complex thing and it's just so much easier especially for liberals to just kind of vilify the sacklers and blame big pharma it's kind of just like a perfect narrative for the kind of to like generate the righteous anger of liberals to like you know be mad at pharma which i'm all for pharma sucks but it's not gonna help solve our problem i need to keep constantly remind myself that i'm i'm immersed in and reporting on the bottom 10% of drug users, you know, probably maybe even less, we, we don't see the functional drug users, you know? So, so because they live normal lives and generally keep what they do to themselves. So, um, you know, we have been fed a narrative based on the lowest common denominator of what can happen to a person, you know, living in the street, um, you know, shooting up on the sidewalks in Kensington or in the hollers of, of West Virginia. Um, and the and the and the fatalities, you know. But how many chronic pain patients have been taking oxycontin all their lives and 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 take it as prescribed and maybe feel good from it? But but that that's 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 where the manageability ends, you know. So like that's that's kind of that's kind of something that I think is is overlooked as we we don't. I'd love to do something on on functional drug users. Yeah, functional users of hard drugs, what we call hard drugs. Yeah, like there's there's no cultural context to understand what you just said like we have endless depictions of the the kind of you know very like hardcore uh chaotic severe end of addiction and and i and i also think like it's not even those people in that group that are necessarily driving the mortality as much like i think a lot of the new the kind of surge in overdose deaths is is coming from just this kind of totally chaotic drug supply that we've never dealt with before. Like people don't have a tolerance. They think they're taking a Xanax, but it's really something else or counterfeit pills. Like there was that crazy story out of Connecticut where some uh, middle schooler or high schooler overdosed on fentanyl and they found like 40 bags on this young kid. It's like, you know, these are such potent substances. There's no way like a 13 year old (laughs) has a tolerance for it. So like, I really wonder the, the, the latest age breakdowns, like how much of the most recent surge in mortality is coming from uh, naive users, for lack of a better word. 
Yeah. What I'm really confused about is why the market hasn't stabilized. Like, people that traffic and sell drugs, like, they don't really want to kill their customers. A lot of them don't even know what they're selling. But, like, why haven't we gotten to a point where it's like, oh, this is stuff that is less likely to kill you? It just seems like put whatever you want in a bag, and if it makes you feel a little loopy, then you can sell it. I I don't know. I mean... Speaking only from Philadelphia, like because I can't extrapolate this to America, fentanyl has like lowered the cost the cost of investment the, the cost of entrance into the, the the heroin market, so to speak. You know, so so you're talking, you know, really really inexperienced. What used to be a multi generational business model that that involved you know some some rules and some structure. There was a code, man. What happened to the code? Yeah, exactly. Has devolved into like. You know who can get to you know twenty five hundred dollars together to get like you know some some fentanyl and 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 some xylazine and pop up on a corner for four days and and make as much money as they can and disappear. That's that's why what uh, Dolph is doing is so fucking amazing. That's the Drug User Liberation Front in Vancouver, and they're giving out meth, cocaine, and heroin that they've sourced from the deep web or the dark web or whatever, you know, they bought it using Bitcoin or NFTs or something ridiculous. But it's like they test it every which way. They're making sure this is pure, the actual drug content, and they're giving it away for free, usually in front of the police station in downtown Vancouver. And the government's just kind of like, kind of looking the other way for now. I'm really curious where that's going to go. I did speak to somebody from there. And and they were talking about like you know we're still dealing with cartels you know we're still sourcing our drugs from criminal gangs basically but we don't have another option and we're just doing this until the government basically steps up and gives us safe supply, um, you know and I'm, I'm, they're risking arrest they're risking so many other things and people are freaking out of course because they don't understand but what else are you supposed to do this is literally a war right. People are dying in the hundreds or thousands per day, and you got to do something. And I feel like Dolph is at least doing something that's effective. I'd even, I'd even try it, you know. Just I've never had pure meth. We should do a trip to Vancouver and buy or get the the free tested drugs and just see see what that's like. It's all free. They're not making any money, which is right. Which is amazing. Like you know, they're just they're dumping their own cash into purchasing this stuff. Back back to the idea, like you know, we're still dealing with cartels and criminal gangs. And to your question, Troy, about the the market volatility and why it won't stabilize. Like, I kind of have this fantasy of what if you know groups like Dolph or other kind of harm reduction groups in America, like the urban survivors, how could they get a meeting with the cartel bosses in Mexico? Like, I picture all these people at this long table in, like, you know, Mexico, like they're at this beautiful villa by the pool or something in a vineyard, and they're all hashing it out. Like, you guys are the ones killing all of us. Like, we're your customers, and we've been in business together for so many years. Like, why, Like, how could there be some kind of meeting of the minds to get the cartels and the manufacturers to listen to these groups, and they could hash out some kind of uh, regularity 
in the market. Like, could that happen? <laughs> like, that's a TV show that I would watch. There used to be like a buyer's club of some sort around a, a drug buyer's club. Um, and, and I don't remember where, what city it was in. I, somebody told me about it a while ago where, yeah, it was, it was like a, you know, like a group of users in a city, like organized, I guess, kind of like a drug user union and was buying in bulk, like from, you know, certain places. Um, it, it, it's certainly possible. Um, but yeah. Who would broker that deal? Like, how does that, get set up and yeah right like oh man it's it just something like that has to happen otherwise like just I, I i don't know how how else this could end and and what you just said chris reminds me of um like chicago where i live there's just been this long legacy heroin market here going back decades and at the top of it there used to be like brokers there would be people kind of buying in bulk that would then kind of give it to the bosses in various neighborhoods and from there it would get cut and get to the corner and so yeah like there is even in this totally unregulated illicit market like there is some type of structures and and there has historically been um like hierarchy and organization and you know it's just makes me think that to the kind of freelancer effect that, that you've talked about, where just all these crews kind of can get in at the bottom and then it becomes a race to the bottom. Basically it's like something, something like that clearly has been going on or just some mad experiment in shifting away from agricultural to synthetic production. And it's been a horrible, disastrous experiment. And, and but it doesn't it doesn't have to be like fentanyl can be the original Siegfried formula for fentanyl had a process for creating like thirty percent pure hair like synthetic heroin they just don't use it you know it's not it's not it's not cost effective for them to do it, it you know it was had to do with evaporating it in ethanol or something and and it you know basically eliminating the chocolate chip effect that that kills so many people. Um, methamphetamine is the only drug we ever sample in the lab that is purely methamphetamine without any adulterants. Um, you know, like that's one thing is, is that synthetic with the cheapness of the synthetics gives, comes the, comes the, um, possibility of, you know, producing, not needing to step on it as much producing like a pure product. Um, if they did it right. Um, fentanyl doesn't have to kill people. You know, it's used in the hospital every day and, um, it's, it's the instability of of the of the way it's processed and the way it's it's packaged uh, that does, and certainly the the additives like you know, xylazine and benzos. I don't know why anybody would make benzo dope. It's the most horrible idea in the world. You're like guaranteed to kill people in the in the um, self censuring doctor paradigm. Yeah, I mean doctors are reluctant to prescribe them. Um, people are getting panicked about being dependent on them. Um, you know. And in some ways, doctors have been, you know, sort of lackadaisical in the past. My father was on Xanax. He has Parkinson's disease. He's been on Xanax for years. And nobody ever told him that he couldn't stop taking it or he would risk, you know, a seizure or, or something And until I mentioned it one day. And, and I was like, your doctor never told you this. But, um, but you know, the good the good news is is that these analogs, while, while more powerful, are, are not fentanyl. And we, we were seeing a rash of fentanyl overdoses from 
uh, pressed bars that had fentanyl in them, you know, counterfeit Xanax made with fentanyl. Um, but, uh, now, and, and I used to think, I wonder when, you know, suppliers are going to realize that you can get unscheduled analogs like a Tizalam and, and, and whatnot from overseas. And they're doing that now because all of our Xanax, uh, just about all of it in Kensington comes up as, um, an unregulated, uh, unscheduled, uh, analog that's pressed, um, to, to look almost identical. I mean, they're doing like, I don't know how they do it. But um, but yeah, I know a guy who was um, who was getting overprescribed probably um, ninety Xanax, ninety two milligrams Xanax bars a month, and and sixty I think Suboxone, and his doctor got arrested because somebody overdosed on like a, a pain patient not in his addiction practice overdosed, and they sent them all to another doctor who who proceeded to like cut their dose in half of Xanax like th- like that month which is like ridiculous if you were taking it all. Um, and then they cut it down in half again. And then, you know, and, he, and there were like several people that I know that were like just scrambling to like find new doctors um, that, that would prescribe. Wow. And he had to pay, he wound up having to pay somebody $300 just to tell him a doctor, <laughs> the name of a doctor that he then, you know, just for, just for the tip, you know. Um, so, so I, th- I think, yeah, anxiety and as somebody that suffers from generalized anxiety disorder, you know, I mean, it, it affects me personally sometimes. Like, so, I mean, it, it's, a, you know, for some reason people have, you know, we have no problem putting people on drugs that don't have the potential to make you feel good. Um, my father's Parkinson's medication regimen, like is, is destroying his body in many ways, but, but like he still gets it, you know, um, because it, it, it doesn't, you know, make him feel good, you know, but if you have anxiety or you have pain and you run the risk of, of getting tipsy or high, um, you know, even while using as prescribed, it's, 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 um, it's the moralizing around, around pleasure. Like you talk about a lot about, um, Troy, you know, I think that that's got a lot to do with it. Yeah. It is uh weird watching how, Drugs on the street are just becoming more and more mysterious. Um, Dance Safe tweeted recently on February 17th, quote, we're seeing an unusually large number of drugs data submissions returning as, quote, unidentified, which means that they contain a drug that isn't in Dance Safe's database of thousands of substances. The market's, get e- the market's getting even worse. Spread the word. I want to be optimistic, but I'm just like a little bit not, you know, just seeing how people are dying and ingesting things that they have no clue about and it just feels like you know the north star or whatever is is safe supply just having a regulated supply of of narcotics or stimulants or whatever um i just don't see that happening in the u.s anytime soon like canada is edging closer to that but like their safe supply programs are expensive uh they have very few patients it's not meeting the needs and people in Canada is still overdosing by the dozens every day. Yeah, I think it's it's still really hard to get injectable diacetylmorphine or hydromorphone. And, uh, you know, the, these are both two drugs that did fairly well in double-blind randomized studies. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the, the, the zenith of medical research. There's all kinds of data to support safe supply, like 
some people like ask like where's the data it's like it's a real simple google search and it's cochrane reviews yeah they uh that's like one of the highest standards of medical research and they look at this situation and like oh wow it actually works it's like common sense backed up by science but you know we're always telling people like test your drugs test your drugs test your drugs but it's like it almost feels futile. It's like, test your drugs. But like, if it's a drug that no one's even heard of and no one can even pronounce, like, then how are you going to know what you're taking? You really have to trust who you're getting it from. I don't know if there's other strategies we can tell people about. But yeah, just trusting your source is, is really important. And starting slow, starting with a really small amount, tasting it a little bit before you inject it um, or, or smoke it. Overseas and, and in the Netherlands, they've seen a transition to smoking. Um, and, and in fact, I, I learned recently that more people died in British Columbia and Vancouver, maybe from smoking dope than, than from injecting it. So like you can, but you can, tight, you know, sort of titrate your dose a little bit better if you, if you take a little bit. And then I, I've been asked, you know, is that, is that something you see possible? And Philly, and I know the Department of Health has been, you know, floating the idea of getting um, harm reduction supplies, like harm reduction foil and things like that. Uh, but it, I've I've seen one person smoke, um, you know, smoke their 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 fentanyl in the past five years. It's it seems to work some places and others, but it is a good way to you know test because the the, the test strips are are frankly useless anymore. Um, there's only you, you can't test for. You can, you can test for practically nothing. I mean, you get fentanyl, cocaine. Um, there's probably strips. There's strips for methamphetamine. The benzo strips only encompass about the five the primary benzodiazepines. You know, um, and and there's, that's about it. You know, you can't test for K two or any kind of synthetic cannabinoid. When I was in West Virginia in December for a reporting trip, uh, it seemed multiple people who I bumped into there and interviewed and spoke with were smoking fentanyl actually. And I was talking to a couple guys who live in, in a sober house in Morgantown, West Virginia. And they said that a couple weeks prior to my arrival and, and getting there, that one of their housemates died from an overdose. And like the, the, the quick story is that he had just uh, gotten out of jail and so obviously tolerance down and we have to account for criminalization as like one of the big variables in driving mortality at this point like when people lose their tolerance their risk for overdose shoots up but so this guy had just gotten out of uh, jail for for a couple of days on some you know probably bullshit charge moved into the sober house and was like alone up there for maybe a half hour and he was found with a piece of burnt tinfoil on his chest four narcan doses couldn't bring him back it was too late and the the guys told me that the like size of the burn mark on the foil was like no bigger than a teardrop just like a tiny tiny little dot uh of fentanyl on the foil is what did him in. And when I heard that, I was, I was just kind of stunned. I was just like, you know, so so it seemed like A, smoking is definitely becoming a thing, but that B, you know, it, it is a very fast and, and pretty intense route of administration. We have our capillaries in our lungs. You feel it 
fastest. You feel it instantly. A lot of people think injecting is the fastest, but smoking, you know, that's that's the quickest crossage of the blood brain barrier. And with this guy, it, like just a tolerance down for a couple days, and that's enough to do it. And the kicker is that they had the the guys in the house had helped him uh, find uh, a doctor to you know get on suboxone or something, and that like his appointment was literally the next day, and and so it's just like a combination of uh, criminalization and not having access to medication like on the spot when you need it. And just the potency and irregularity and volatility of the supply seems to be just these kind of huge factors uh, swirling around. And we we could get into talking about Suboxone right now, because I think a lot of people think are saying, at least online and and, uh, Crackdown, their podcast did a great episode about the limits, the limitations of, of using buprenorphine right now. Because fentanyl, it, I mean, it's so complicated to try to get onto buprenorphine if you are coming off of a fentanyl. Yeah, that would be a, a good uh, a half measure for between safe supply and what we have now is just flooding the streets with buprenorphine. Yeah, and that's a, that's a I see more people fail on, on that, and what that could be on methadone. Um, and just be 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 stabilized. This is also a great segue into why every single jail system and prison system in America should have a buprenorphine program, because it's the only time you're going to have a controlled setting of people that are removed from the street that can be transitioned. And I've seen that succeed, if temporarily, you know, like you know. But I've seen people come out that were, you know, hopelessly addicted to to, to, to fentanyl that were that were now taking their suboxone and. Um, or, but it should be all. It should be all. Um, it should be methadone and, and even Vivitrol if you want it. But um, I don't know if I'm if I'm tipping the hat here on 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 uh, something that's not been announced yet. But but um, John Wetzel, who is the head of uh, who just retired as the superintendent of Pennsylvania's entire prison system, is is launching a nonprofit to to see that happen. Hopefully someday. He's a big proponent of method of method of uh, medication assisted treatment in prison settings, in jail settings. And this guy could have come out with it with at least a tolerance, you know, that if he did go back to smoking, you know, the the, the butte might have might have saved his life. Yeah. There was actually a study recently that, that was really interesting and it and it showed that with buprenorphine on board, uh it really is a uh, protective against the respiratory suppression from fentanyl. So like even if somebody took their buprenorphine in the morning, say, and then by the afternoon they're smoking fentanyl, their chances of uh, of dying are significantly decreased because that buprenorphine is on board. And the way that these opioids work at the receptor sites it's for for listeners like you know, think of, uh, you know, like a wall full of uh, locks uh, and you put a key into one of those locks and that's like the buprenorphine locking into the receptor. It kind of covers it and your brain only has so many of these receptors. And so if you take some buprenorphine, 
depending on the dose, if you take like eight milligrams, like, you know, half of those locks will have keys in it. But then the rest of the locks are empty and that, those can be filled by, by other opioids. And, but so long as some of your receptors have buprenorphine on board or methadone on board or something, uh, it seems to, yeah, greatly reduce your, your risk of, of fatally overdosing. Well, yes. I mean, I, I could say speaking of smoking, we talk about supervised injection and, and I visited On Point in New York, but half of their clients come in there to smoke, um, to smoke crack or meth or even K2. And I, I found that number to be like staggering. I, I mean, that, that 50% are there to smoke their drugs. And, and so they're, they're expanding their smoking room. Um, they give out crack pipe kits there, um, which have become a subject of controversy. Um, in, in at federal levels, I guess. Um, it's not even clear to me that any federal money has been spent on these things, um, but uh, people do, you know, there's lines out the door to use their smoking rooms now. What are, what are their smoking rooms like there? Because I did a story for The Fix a couple of years ago about the first supervised uh, inhalation site that opened up in Canada. Uh, it's weird. Like there, sometimes these supervised consumption places will just have like a, a door to this back, like atrium or gazebo or something. And people can smoke outside, which in Canada sounds pretty miserable in the winter. But um, the one that they opened up, um, I can't even remember what it was. Um, but the one they opened up, they had like these extremely expensive ventilation systems and there's like an emergency switch on the wall and like like so that if like somebody passes out in there you can hit the switch and it will suck all the smoke out and like you won't have to breathe anything in and it really just feels like overkill to me like they had to have this really expensive ventilation system in the fire department come out and like do everything and it's just like you're just smoking meth like open a window or something right right well, I mean, at on point in Harlem, they just, they're just using their two bathrooms. Uh, now the bathrooms are, are single occupancy. So they, they don't have a, any plexiglass windows. So that, so they can monitor what's going on in there. They give you a 15 minute time limit and only one person at a time, um, in Harlem. Uh, but they're, they're going to expand that and break through the, 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 the two bathrooms and put in plexiglass windows so they can observe. As far as I know, there's no like particular ventilation issue. Um, but, but looking back at some of the meeting minutes, you know, from 2015 when they were starting to generate the ideas around this, like smoking and making it, smoking a, a, a component of the sites was seen as, as a big challenge. And it's kind of funny that we still like have this thing about smoking, like that, you know, they, they try, you know, they, they tried to do away with smoking in rehabs, you know, which is just ridiculous. It was a, such a backlash against it here, here, here in Philly that, that, that they took, they re, you know, they, 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 bat, they walked that back. But, um, you know, I, I was surprised by how low barrier the sites in New York really are. I mean, in Washington Heights, people can even split doses. Um, which is unheard of in, in a lot of other is is more that's why there is more of an overdose prevention site like Canada is starting to open a lot more of these where they're they're sort of peer led and um, and you know the low barrier which has been a big critique of say like a safe house model here in, in Philadelphia is that it's just too high barrier which raises the cost you know you don't need a you don't need a doctor there really. Yeah, the consumption sites only work if there's buy-in and people want to go, right? If it's a hassle and you need to jump through all these hoops, it's not going to attract the, the, the clientele and, and like, you know, like 
the the, the smoking thing i mean we, we have to bring it up that speaking of like the drug war and are things getting better or things getting worse just this whole panic over the the quote-unquote crack pipe uh media driven cycle of racism and fear like i feel like uh like this all happened within the last two weeks and like on the one hand it feels like a major setback where okay the government invests in harm reduction to the tune of 30 million dollars which let's be real that that's not adequate that that's not a lot of money that that's a drop in the bucket in terms of federal government spending so that 30 million came out of the american rescue plan that that legislation that package was 1.9 trillion dollars so so 30 million of that which is like barely registers as like a percentage um was going to fund harm reduction programs, you know, like syringe services and places like Safe House and, and all the big names in harm reduction that, that that we've talked about and heard of over the years. Finally, these programs that have been in operation for decades would get, you know, some federal government support. And the moment that the that the grants are are due and the application deadline is closing. The right-wing media sphere kind of kicks up this whole panic about the government distributing crack pipes and your tax dollars going, you know, 30 million of your tax dollars are going to fund uh, crack pipes and, and just like all this shit just totally hit the fan don't they know that they're not crack pipes they're va- they're little vases for a, fla- a flower <laughs> yeah they, right they, they it's, it's a little glass stem <laughs> it's the most unoffensive silly little object like how could you possibly get mad about this but we all know like it, it's not really about that but the, but the kicker to this story is is like the white house and the like so that the health and human services secretary and the uh director of ondcp the federal drug policy agency they they backpedaled and and caved and basically were like no 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 the safer smoking kits that any of these funds will go to will not contain actual pipes like we're not going to you know subsidize quote unquote um you know the, the the smoking of crack and and like what are we doing here if this is if this kind of thing doesn't even get like pushback from the the federal leaders who who are in charge of this stuff right like it it was just such a uh kind of sad cycle that we've seen play out a million times like it happened with bill clinton and syringe programs back in the 90s right like we're, we're kind of locked in this cycle it's infuriating because the right knows that they can exhaust the left by just making up bullshit. Like, everybody had to, like, scramble and, like, no, we got to refute this. This is not actually about crack pipes or, you know, oh, let's, let's dredge up all the evidence that shows that smoking is safer than injecting. And, like, what do you want them to do? Like, they're going to use drugs either way. Like, that's none of your business anyway. But if they're going to smoke, that's that's something we should be encouraging people to do. It will save us money because believe it or not bunches of people dying costs 
It's a drain on the economy. If that's like the only thing you fucking care about is the stock market, like stop letting people die from preventable deaths. And this is all preventable. The part of me is almost okay with 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 keeping the government out of harm reduction. Like let 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 private money take care of it. The, the more the government gets involved in it, the more it's going to get fucked up, in my opinion. But that's just, you know, I mean, because they, they, there's going to be these these the power of the purse, you know, to start you know implementing. Um, new rules or regulations or, you know, I mean, it's a double-edged sword in in a way. Uh, I mean, you know. Yeah, no, like, I I agree. Like, I I think on the one hand, governments have, like, a moral minimum, just like a baseline debt that they owe to the governed. Like, you all need health care, you all need shelter, you all need food, like, just, like, basic things that all governments should make available for their citizens if they want to govern over a functioning society and public health is is part of that and the government in its current structure and in its current form and in this country is just yeah totally incapable of doing public health when so many of our elected leaders just loathe and despise the public like you can't do public health if you hate people (laughs) if you just don't give a shit about the public you have absolutely yeah no uh qualm with with covid deaths with overdose deaths with rampant hep c and hiv and all of these totally preventable things that yeah on the back end way downstream cost way 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 more money than a 10 cent syringe or a half of a cent little glass stem it's like do you want to pay for that up front and invest in it or do you want to treat hepatitis c or hiv for the next you know however many years per person like do the math on at least on the fiscal argument but like it we can marshal the fiscal argument we can cite all the evidence and the research uh it's just it's like not going to move the needle you know no pun intended yeah, all Fox News has to do is run a headline that says Biden wants to give you crack pipes. That somehow they attach it to, to his son, um, Hunter. Oh, God. It, it's like, okay. Well, I, I hate to make predictions, but um, something that's given me optimism, a little bit at least, is uh, the DEA recently tried to add more drugs to its list of things that are controlled. Um which is a really fucking stupid model that the the cops basically write the laws about what drugs that they enforce, which that's totally a conflict of interest. Um, but they they said in January they're they're going to criminalize these five drugs, which if you've never heard of them before, don't blame yourself. They're kind of weird. There's four four O H D I P T, five M E O A M T, five M E O M I P T. 5-MeO-DET, and DIPT. These are all tryptamines that are sort of related to LSD or psilocybin. Um, you know, they're psychedelics, and, and the DEA is like, we got to make these banned. We got to make them Schedule 1. We got to make them hard to research and hard to have extreme uh, criminal penalties attached. Um, but there's a group of people um, that have requested a hearing with the DEA and uh, it's going to go to court basically. And they're really challenging this. And, you know, I I won't bore people with all the details. They can look it up themselves if they want. Um, But I think it's important that we see more institutions 
things that are like respectable science institutes or whatever standing up to this and being like the dea does not need more power they're not doing anything productive with it in the first place this is just going to make it more expensive to study these drugs that like their claims that it's hurting people are really really bizarre because nobody's doing these drugs really like they're very hard to get they're they're rare and they don't really i mean they're tryptamines they're like not that dangerous compared to like other drugs and like some of the data they're citing on um deaths are like you know from decades ago so it's like totally ridiculous but like that does give me a little bit of optimism that more people are pushing back against the dea's authority uh we saw that with kratom in 2016 like they tried to make kratom illegal and the backlash was it was just beautiful to see you know that all like these congress people is a bipartisan effort to be like hey people rely on kratom you know they, they use it for pain and all kinds of different medications like as a replacement and uh you know if you take this away from people it's going to cause more death more suffering people will use other illicit substances so yeah that's one thing that gives me encouragement like but it's also going to be dragged out in court for a while so we'll see how that goes yeah that that, what that reminds me of troy is just kind of the like the reason to me why the dea wants to get these obscure substances in schedule one and controlled and they're also pushing for like the blanket to make permanent the blanket ban for all fentanyl analogs and add all these things to the analog act or or whatever it's just so that they can prosecute people easier like the the argument is like oh prosecutors and the dea like have their hands tied behind their back because of like you know loopholes and unscheduled substances and all like it it's harder to prove in court that these substances are analogs of already class uh controlled substances and so it's all just about doing more drug war like more punishment making it easier to prosecute people and yeah we should all be pushing back against that as as hard as we can because we know it's futile and 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 it doesn't work and but yeah like I, i think it is hopeful that that these kinds of things that maybe five ten years ago wouldn't really cause any debate or stir up any backlash um yeah more people are paying attention to this stuff and 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 yeah i think it you know one thing i'm hopeful about is just you know maybe some of the kind of collective action and organizing that all this shit is is sparking is like it, it seems like you know pain patients are you know spoke loudly enough and got the cdc to rewrite guidelines for opioid prescribing and like it takes people you know really organizing and pushing to get their demands met and and it's just more and more and more i you know i just see these problems as problems of political will ultimately and and yeah in america i think people are just so alone and so isolated that that we all feel kind of powerless over you know like the government and what it does it just seems like we don't have a say and we don't get to choose like how many of us really wanted joe biden to to be president (laughs) i mean it's it's just like all these all these critical 
decisions and all this elected leadership just feels like it's the wheels are spinning with or without our participation. And it, it, it's just like a, a really kind of depressing fact of, of American life right now that the, it just, we really don't have any way to put our finger on the scale to, to tip things in our, in our, in our direction. And, and so in terms of the future, yeah, I don't know, like, should we all just get prescribed heroin and live in the metaverse? Like, I don't know, like, like what, what on earth could, can make this feel better? Um, Why don't we wrap up with uh, predictions? Like, uh, you know, each one of us start starting maybe with you, Troy, like, and we can wrap it up. Uh, like, what are your predictions for the next year? What do you think? Where do you think we're going to see uh, heat, less heat, you know, reform, less reform? I really do wonder what it's going to take to create long-lasting change because the drug war is extremely unpopular. Most people, Republican, Democrat, or anything in between, you know, we all want it to end. We all know somebody that's a victim of this war that was unnecessarily targeted or had their lives destroyed more by prohibition than by the substance that they were criminalized for. Um, But we can't even get, like prescription drug prices lowered, which is an extremely popular idea. Uh, Senator Sanders um, tried to force a vote on it recently. And like this one Republican asshole, whose name is literally Crapo. I I mean, (laughs) come on, dude. Like, I don't know why you wouldn't change your name if your name is Crapo. But he he blocked it. And like this one guy from Idaho, um, you know, we hear a lot about Joe Manchin being an asshole and blocking legislation, but it's also the Republicans in general. And I don't want to get too political on here because this is a drug podcast and not, I don't know what's a political podcast. I don't listen to them. So, but I, I think it is relevant, you know, who you vote for and participating in local and national elections is like, will be one of the things that helps unravel this drug war. And one of the reasons why I like reporting on it is because it is intersected with every aspect of our culture. It's in Hollywood, it's in science, it's in criminal justice, public health. It, it's everywhere. And like the simplest thing we could do to just like stop criminalizing people who self-medicate or use drugs for to, to feel a little bit better about the decaying planet, like stop treating people who choose which chemicals to put in their body this way um i'm obviously ranting a little and preaching to the choir but yeah i mean yeah like my you know kind of piggybacking off of that i just think because the mortality is so high and things look so grim and we have to like take into account that you know black people and native americans like they're dying in some of the steepest rates and it's really like you know sadly the case that the the headlines that get made about these kind of young suburbanite teenagers who overdose from uh you know a pill they took that was just pure fentanyl i mean it's like you know that stuff has a double edge it could really spark very punitive reactionary drug policies or because things are so bad they could tip in the other direction. They, we could push for things that were unheard of five, 10 years ago. And so I think 
that's partly what I'm hopeful about is just the fact that things feel so kind of chaotic that we don't know which way things are going and it, things could really accelerate and go in the right direction. It, it's totally possible. Like Donald Trump became president. Like anything is fucking possible. I mean, so I think that's that's kind of one hopeful thing. Well, that's my, that's my prediction that the Biden administration is going to be more aggressive than um, we anticipated. Um, I think by the end of the this time next year, there'll be at least two more cities with overdose prevention sites. But I think that um, internationally, um, that Biden will probably be more hawkish on the drug war than even Trump was, who's kind of an isolationist and and and, and, and you know like a domestic policy guy and social you know national socialist, if you want to call him that. Um, I think Biden's going to be much more involved in foreign policy, and um, and and we'll see some somewhat of a resurgence of like the plain Columbia type stuff we saw in, in the 80s and 90s. Chris, weren't you saying the other day, I think we were on the phone and you were saying that these days it's people are more likely to avoid fake pills or like they, they encounter a pill on the street and like they're, they, they realize, oh, this is probably fake and therefore it's probably got something unidentified. So I, I, I'm safer with the street drugs like in the little baggie that's the powder, you know, not not in some tablet form or something like yeah, I mean, it depends. I mean, you know, there's there's an ethnic breakdown on that where, like, you know, street trappers and African-Americans have tended to to favor pharmaceuticals. So, like, you know, they'll 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 take Adderall and things like that over methamphetamine. But but like when it comes to pressed Percocet, um, I mean, Percocet now is is two dollars a milligram, like or not Percocet, but oxycodone, two dollars a milligram. So like a, a 10 milligram Percocet will go for twenty dollars a piece. Um, I just don't see it being sustainable. Um, uh, but like generally, it's known, you know, that, that whether something's pressed or not, um, because it'll be it'll be cheaper. You know, you can get a pressed one for for cheaper. But why that's favorable to some some people than just doing the fentanyl like itself, I, I, I do not, I don't know, um, because you know, we've tested these oxycodone or perk 30s as they call them here that are just fentanyl and gabapentin and, and some binder. Um, and then, you know, as I said, the benzos are, are the benzos are, are, are the analogs, which is, which is good because it's keeping people that have a dependency well and not killing them, you know? Um, but uh, you can always tell by the price of a drug, you know, there's a corner that sells them for $5 a piece where the going price is $10 a piece. Well, guess what? They're pressed. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to leave on a sort of an optimistic note. And, you know, I cover psychedelics a lot, and, and that seems to be moving in a positive direction a lot of the time. There's about 14 cities that have decriminalized psychedelics. There's all this variation there, and, like, a lot of people don't even really know what decriminalized means. It's very complicated. Oregon, of course, has um, legalized the psilocybin program that should be uh, rolling out at the end of the year. And a lot of other states are looking into this issue, but... It also feels like an example of psychedelic exceptionalism, like, oh, these drugs are, quote, safer, so it's okay to, to, to move the, the, the needle forward on this issue. They're plant medicine. But no one's dying from a psilocybin overdose, you know what I mean? Like, it's good that we don't have people get arrested for this anymore, and the people that, whether they need it for therapeutic reasons or they need it just because they want to fucking relax, they should have access to it. But... That's not the real issue with the drug war. The real issue is 
opioids, stimulants, benzos, those things are what's when they're tainted or killing people. Well, they'll, they'll always find a way to wage the war. You know, when they when they decriminalized marijuana in, in possession in, in Philadelphia, the you know driving while intoxicated arrests went up because they're going to start targeting you like and trying to determine whether or not you're high on psilocybin or something while you're driving. You know, the, 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 the drug warriors will find a way. Oh yeah, I'm out here in California's high desert near Joshua Tree and. Uh, San Bernardino County was given $200,000 to the cops to basically go after illegal pot farms. And I see it in the headlines every week. Like, they raided this farm, they confiscated hundreds of thousands of uh, plants and arrested a bunch of people. On one site, they found a grenade. Like, <laughs> a live grenade had to call in the bomb squad. And <laughs> it's just ridiculous because it's like, it is, it is the... Uh, the, the drug war is still like even though cannabis has been legal in in california for a long time there's still these illegal farms out here and they're doing it the same thing raiding them with the cops um whereas san bernardino county is the largest county in the u.s and dispensaries are banned here because the cannabis law is like counties can opt in to having dispensaries or not so i literally get it delivered to my house because I can't go down the street to, to, you know, next to Walgreens or something. So it just comes to my house. Someone drives down from Riverside County and it's just ridiculous. Like it's this farce and that incentivizes these illegal farms, which are destroying the environment. You're right. The, the, the drug war will just find a new, a new form of, of discriminating against people. And I think maybe, maybe that gets to the core of it. It's not the drugs that are the issue. It's the, mass surveillance and the police state that we live in that needs to justify its existence. Right. Well, the good news, the good news is that doctors are starting to, to come back from their, their, especially young doctors. You know, I've been invited to speak before a group of medical students, you know, he went, you know, like this doctor resident, I guess, reached out to me and said, we want to know how to be better doctors for like, you know, and give agency to, to drug users. Like, I mean, the fact that that is happening and that, and that, and that doctors are coming up in a culture where there is harm reduction discussed um, in, 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 in the hospital setting. Um, and it's still, you know, there are still terrible policies in many hospitals, but I know uh, the two doctors we had on recently on the show, you know, if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and, and listen to Ashish and Ben um, really get into um, the, this sort of changing culture among some of their peers uh, to adopt, you know, policies that, you know, give agency to drug users and let them decide where they want to be. Yeah, I think that's what I was getting to a little bit ago when I'm saying, like, things have gotten so bad that, you know, the scales could tip and for sure, in in our generation, this crisis has radicalized people. Like, I've talked to a ton of up-and-coming doctors who are getting into addiction medicine. And, like, that was never, like, a advertised subspecialty or advertised and, and out there for students to be like, hey, here's how you can make a difference. Like, set up shop and start prescribing buprenorphine learn how to prescribe methadone like here's all the ways that you could really really help people with addiction and and i think yeah i'm I'm really really hopeful about the future of of medicine just because the the new generation coming into it 
uh, yeah, has yeah been totally radicalized by all their friends dying and so many people just being beaten down by the medical system all these years. So that's definitely one one potential positive. Yeah. And a big part of our audience, they seem to be nurses and doctors that are really interested in this stuff. And that actually surprised me when I found out about that. Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, the people listening right now, like, you are the future, you know, we can just talk about it. But like, it's gonna take all of us to actually get the work done. Yeah, like, we're just writers. <laughs> we don't do shit. <laughs> I mean, like, the number of doctors and people in healthcare that follow follow me on social media has is, is, is gone up. I, I think there is but massive interest in 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 this, you know, from from the medical community and how they can be better. Yeah, because they they actually want to help people, and the old way of doing things, shaming people about their drug use, surveilling them, or arresting them, you know, that doesn't that doesn't help people. And I think doctors are recognizing that. It's it's that's encouraging. So I'll let you guys wrap up here because um, I got a roll. I got another call to get on, but um. It's great, great talking to you, Chris. Yeah, it's great. Great. Thank you. I'll do it check out day. check out Chris's piece in New York Magazine about uh, New York City's consumption sites. It's really good. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, check us out on narcocast.com. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. You can get some merch like stickers and more perks that are coming soon. A little goes a long way, guys, so thanks for helping us out. We're ad-free, and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by just spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glass Boy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad, drug-using producer. You can follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. I guess we have an Instagram now, too. Those are the best ways to try and contact us if you have a suggestion, complaint, or just want to tell us nice things. SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. That's about everything. Have a good week, guys.